Well, good morning, everybody. It's, um, it's very sad that I can't see all your happy, smiling faces out there, but I must, must just say that it's been partly recompensed for me because I've just been watching Barbara Scase doing all the actions to the children's song, all on her own, sitting in a pew, all by herself, and it was great. But let's get on. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When I started preparing this sermon, I read quickly through the passage to see if anything jumped out at me. Nothing remarkable about that, I hear you say. I would guess that many of us do the same when we study or begin to study uh, a Bible passage. But what might strike you as remarkable in this particular case is exactly what did jump out at me from the passage we just heard read to us. A passage, you'll remember, that contains Jesus' great commission to his followers to go and make disciples and his promise to be with us always to the very end of the age. Well, call me contrary if you like, but it wasn't either of these uber-famous verses that jumped out at me. It was actually verse 15. This story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. What story? Well, the story that Jesus hadn't actually risen from the dead, but rather that his disciples came during the night and stole his body away while the guards were asleep. And as I read this, I was transported suddenly back 50-odd years to when I was a student at Imperial College in London. When I told my local vicar that I was going to London, he gave me this as a leaving present. It's John Stott's classic book, Basic Christianity. Wasn't that nice of him? Cost three and sixpence in those days, which was a lot of money. But of even greater value than that book, I think, was his suggestion that if I wanted a good church to go to, I should go to John Stott's All Souls in Langham Place. Well, I duly went to London, and I did go to All Souls. I always do what vicars tell me. And the young John Stott, I guess he was in his early to mid-40s in those days, was indeed a great source of sound teaching and spiritual encouragement. And actually, London in the mid-1960s was an exciting place for young Christians to be, especially because there had been Billy Graham crusades in London in the summer both of 1965 and 1966. And the, and the university and college's Christian unions were actually fairly lively places in those days. And one of the big issues in those days was the truth of the biblical accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. I remember going to a lecture. I can't, can't remember who it was, I, I, I regret to say. He was fairly eminent, but he outlined a whole bunch of alternative explanations for, for the empty tomb. The swoon theory, the hallucination hypothesis, the wrong tomb theory, and of course his own particular favorite, which was, guess what, that the disciples came during the night and stole the body away. And the great thing about John Stott's book is that it contains a whole chapter, 10% of the entire book in fact, on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. It was a ready source of ammunition, if you like, to use in what seemed to us at the time to be one of the great debates. 
And so it was that when Tom suggested Matthew 28, 11 to 20 as the text for this post-Easter sermon, I readily agreed. Not just because I always do what vicars tell me, but also because of a, a kind of st stimulating and nostalgic feeling of deja vu. This story has been widely circulated among, shall we say, skeptics to this day. So, our story begins, verse 11, while the women were on their way. You'll remember, of course, that at dawn on that first Easter day, according to Matthew, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord rolled back the stone and said to the women, Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Go quickly. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of them into Galilee. There they will see him. And what we know is that these women believed. They believed the angel absolutely. And they hurried off, filled with joy to tell the disciples. And as they hurried off, they bump into Jesus. Jesus meets and greets them in person. And they worshipped him. So while the women go off to spread the good news of Jesus' resurrection, the other characters in our story enter into a conspiracy to spread fake news. Verse 11 again, Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Which was, of course, the chief priests' worst nightmare. Only the day before, so we read in the previous chapter, only the day before they'd gone to Pilate to request enhanced security for Jesus' tomb. Otherwise, they said, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And that's the way it happened. The guards hadn't actually seen anyone stealing Jesus' body. Matthew tells us that the guards were so afraid of the angel that they shook and became like dead men. But now the chief priests were equally terrified that ordinary people might actually believe in Jesus' resurrection, which would mean that they, the religious leaders, would lose their authority, their influence, their power, their status, and probably their income. They were so scared, in fact, that they bribed the guards with a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. They even promised to smooth things over if word ever got back to Pilate. So, while the women were sharing the good news that Jesus' tomb is empty because Jesus has risen from the dead, the Jewish religious elite is pushing the fake news that the tomb is empty because Jesus' followers stole the body. And you know, if it wasn't so serious, it would be quite funny. I mean, surely anyone with half a brain could see that it was a fabrication. The disciples hardly seemed bold enough or even smart enough to attempt such a stunt against a bunch of tough security guards for whom sleeping on duty was a capital offense. But the tale was told, and some, perhaps many, believed it. And by the time Matthew's gospel was written, maybe 40, possibly even 50 years after 
the resurrection, the story was still widely circulated among the Jews. That is, among, I guess, devout synagogue congregations who had rejected the messianic claims of Jesus and Jesus' followers. Indeed, it seems to have been a bone of bitter contention between the early Christian churches and the local synagogues for many years. Very early in the second century, Roman historians like Tacitus and Suetonius were referring to belief in Jesus' resurrection as destructive or mischievous superstition. And the early Christian philosopher Justin, Justin, not Justin Welby, Justin Martyr, who was writing at least a century after Jesus' death and resurrection, he confronted Jewish religious leaders of his day for condemning Christianity as a godless and, and, godless and lawless heresy. And the grounds that they used was, they, the accusations they made were, well, disciples stole him by night out of the tomb and now deceive people by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. That's what the Jewish, I guess orthodox Jewish people were saying at the time. So the truth of the resurrection was a matter of fierce debate two millennia ago, just as it was in the mid-60s when I was a student, and indeed just as it is today. You only have to Google what resurrection debate or something like that, and you'll find enough material to keep you occupied through the next lockdown. Academic articles, pugnacious polemics, impassioned invective by atheists, skeptics, and Christian apologists. But here's a question. Does it really matter? Does it really matter what we believe about the resurrection? Well, Paul clearly thought it did. For Paul, the resurrection was irrefutable proof of Jesus' divinity. Romans 1. In his earthly life, Jesus was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus' death and his resurrection are together at the very heart of the gospel of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes into great detail about the resurrection, but he says there, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, the salvation that Jesus won for us by his death is kind of consummated by his being raised to life again. The gospel, the good news, is the resurrection of the crucified Christ because therein lies our hope of eternal life. There's a link, direct link, between Jesus' resurrection and our own eventual resurrection. In the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, since death came through a man, says Paul, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits. Then, when he comes again, those who belong to him. And then, even later in that chapter, 
This is the way it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. In other words, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we also will rise as he has to enjoy the fully redeemed and restored new creation of our God. But you know, we don't have to wait until the next life. We can experience resurrection power right now. But we have to work at it. Listen to Paul's words. This is now Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Then he goes on to say, not that I've already obtained this, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now Paul is in many ways the very model of a faithful follower of Christ. And yet here he is, maybe what, 20 or 30 years into his walk with Jesus, admitting how much more he needs to learn about him. And my prayer is that all of us in the Cornerstone Churches will share Paul's hunger to know Christ more deeply, so attaining to the resurrection from the dead. How many people do we all know, friends, family, neighbors, whose celebration of Easter completely missed the point, failed to recognize the saving power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Such people are, of course, those whom Jesus can com commissions us to go and make disciples of. It's our calling. But it's also our calling never to lose the desire to know more about Jesus. His mercies are new every morning which means that each day we have new opportunities to reflect on the fact that he really wants to reveal more of himself to us and to use his resurrection power to raise us up to new life in all its fullness. So let us, like Paul, press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us, eternal life with him. Amen.